You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. God, this morning, we thank you. And we ask you for ears, ears to hear. We ask that your word come today not just in syllables and letters and words that can be heard, but in power, with full conviction, and with your Holy Spirit. This is our prayer through Jesus. Amen. We all make mistakes. At least that's what I tell other people. No, I'm kidding, of course. I make mistakes. You're going to see that pure and plain and simple today. This weekend, I had the chance to go and see my son Nathan connect up with my college roommate, and we did something that we hadn't done, at least in this place, together. We went tubing. And Nathan got us tubes. We were going down the Clear Creek River in the center of Golden, and we got the tubes together, and there was a problem. We couldn't fit all of the tubes and all the people into the car. So we're trying to think what we're going to do. Are we going to put some on top? or How are we going to do this? And finally, Nathan kind of took charge and said, hey, me and James, we're going we're to take the tubes. We're going to walk. And you need to get to where there's some free parking. And so he gave me directions on how I could get to some free parking and that we'd meet up. Well, I went on my way. I took the car. We separated. I got the car parked, got out of the car, and I realized at that moment that I'd missed some key information, where we were going to meet. I had no idea. No problem, though. I pull out my phone, and I call Nathan, and it rings and rings and goes to voicemail. That's weird. Call again, everything goes to voicemail, and then I remembered their phones are in the car with me along with their keys and their wallets and everything else they didn't want to get wet. And I just kind of stood there frozen thinking, how are we going to connect? Because I had driven to I don't know where. Uh, I know Golden. I know North and South. Uh, James knows nothing of Golden. And how are we going to meet? There was like 12 blocks of places that we could have met. And I stood there at the parking garage and I waited and I thought, I bet they're going to come here And I waited, and I waited. We all make mistakes. How are you doing running your life? You doing pretty good? You doing better than me? Paying attention to directions? Yeah, thank you, Jason. We're we're in the same boat, aren't we? We're finding that when you get to our age, you make more and more mistakes. You forget more and more things. Well, I want you to know, you've made your way to First Christian Albuquerque. And we are a people that simply want to follow Jesus. That's our mission. That's what we say almost every week. It's on our webpage. We follow Jesus. Now, do we have it all together? Well, no. You just heard that story from me. I don't have it together. But we are a people who are together seeking God, seeking to follow Jesus. And we invite you. We invite you as a fellow follower to join with us in following Jesus together. Now, I kind of have to tell you the main point on the front end of this sermon, because I have a feeling you haven't had enough coffee for where we're going today. So I'm just going to tell you the main point on the front end. The main point is that we all make mistakes. 
We're all under the power of sin. As we've looked at this great letter of Paul, this is a letter that helps us get our lives together. It helps us make sense of those things that we don't have together. And Paul helps us hold it all together with two verses in Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, where he gives us the good news, the good news of what God has done. What God did through Jesus Christ to save all believers, all that will come to him through faith. And you probably thought I was crazy in those first couple of weeks when I said that the gospel, the good news, is not about your response or my response to it. It doesn't really matter whether you or I reject it, it's still good news, one way or another. Well, one of the confusing words that we've thrown around a lot is righteousness. The righteousness of God. Through Jesus has been revealed that, that God has this righteousness. Well, we haven't really talked too much about what righteousness is. So what I want to do quickly is give you three ways that people understand this word righteousness. Here we go. The first is as a legal term. It's a word that gets translated a lot, like justice, or justify, or to make right. And it's this idea of well, you want to get what's coming to you. You want the people to get what's due to them, whether that's a rebate or punishment. But justice has this legal notion. All right, that's one. Number two, justice as an attribute of God. It's a moral definition. It's tied to God's character, that God is not going to do something against his own character. As a good God, he's going to remain faithful to that goodness. He's not going to violate it. Third, the third one's about relationship, about God's covenant or promised relationship. That God is going to do whatever God can do to uphold this relationship, to restore it. Even though you and I as humans make so many mistakes and try to break relationship with God and do, God keeps working. God keeps trying to restore and uphold and repair relationship with us. So what we're going to look at today with the righteousness of God is how it gets described in three big sections today. And I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to read some snippets to you along the way. So these three sections, the first one we're going to start with in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Let me read a few verses of this. All who've sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of God's law who are justified. When the Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, though these, though they don't have the law, they're a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. Now, here in this passage, we start to see something about what Paul introduced to us in his sermon last week by talking about sex. You know, he had everyone's attention to talk about sex and bringing these sins all before us. And he split, in the middle of that conversation, he split the church in half and said, okay, we've got the Jews over here who are religious and 
righteous and upright, and they follow God. They know how to do it. And then over on this side of the church, we've got the non-Jews. Those who are kind of new to following God. Well, here in these passages, he says that we are all judged the same. This first section is we are judged the same. We're, whether you're a Jew and you're under the law, well, you're going to be judged under the law. If you're a non-Jew, well, even those non-Jews are able to know the heart by what's on, by the law, by what's on their heart, and they can instinctively follow it. Well, what's a way to understand the difference between these two? Well, here's one. Let's say that I get pulled over. Pulled over for doing 45 in a 35. And I, I say, you know, I didn't see the sign, or the sign was down. I can claim that I don't have knowledge of the law. It doesn't really matter. That officer is going to give me a ticket based upon the law. Because whether or not I'm aware of it, it doesn't matter. Just like standing on a street corner holding my tube and saying, you know, I just didn't hear the instructions, Nathan. I just didn't know where we were supposed to meet because I'm talking to myself. I'm totally cut off disconnected by cell phone and every other means. No way of knowing if we will ever get connected again, let alone nearly kill ourselves floating down the river, right? It doesn't matter my awareness that there should be instructions. It matters whether or not I followed those instructions. Well, that's the first section. We're all judged the same. Everybody good so far? Jews, Gentiles, we're the same. Well, the second section is about the advantage that the Jews have. I don't know if you noticed this about religious people like me. We tend to think that we kind of have an advantage. And so this section is, you know, do the Jews have an advantage? Well, kind of. Or, or as young people say, yeah, no. <laughs> don't know what that means, but I know that it's the no that matters the most. Let's take a look at another section here. Look down in verse 17 of chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and you boast about your relationship to God, and you know his will, and determine what is best because you're instructed by the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, then you that teach others, will you not teach yourself? If you preach against stealing, do you steal? You that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Well, you know, a lot of us think when we're inside of religion that we're kind of protected. Yeah, 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 I know everyone makes mistakes, right? We're the first ones to admit, hey, I'm not perfect. I, I don't do things correct. But, you know, I am kind of protected, right? I mean, I'm, I'm doing what I can. I'm following God. I've got the law. We kind of think that there's a force field. At least that's the way the Jews are describing things. A protection where, yeah, we may all be sinners, and our sin may all be the same. We are separated from God, rejecting God or avoiding God. But there's a couple of things that we try to lean on. And Paul unpacks three of them. Three things that Jews hang on to. And one of them is the law. 
The Jews say, well, look, we've got the law. We know right and wrong. God gave us the insight to what's good and what's bad. We possess it. And they read it and they memorize it and they recite it and they love and uphold the law. But Paul kind of punches them a little bit and says, now you might feel like you're a VIP, might be a rewards member, able to run to the front of the line and be able to go through first because of your special status, but you're not. In fact, he says this gift that you've been given of the law Did you know that the Gentiles follow it instinctively? It's like it's written on their heart. And so you can see the religious people, kind of like I would be furrowing their brows, saying, what, is he doing this? Is he saying that Gentiles can be counted as Jews? Well, he does it with circumcision as well. He pulls out this requirement that's for every male, a marker. And the Jews say, look, look what I do. Look how much I believe, how much faith I have. I'm willing to cut my male sexual organ in response to God. That's what I'm willing to do. And then Paul says, you know, these Gentiles who follow the law instinctively have a circumcision of the heart. And you can see the Jews getting upset. Well, wait a second. You mean that external thing doesn't count for anything? Yes, I know all those Old Testament passages about having a circumcised heart, a spiritual heart that's turned toward God. And they begin to get frustrated. He goes to the third one of this advantage that they evidently do not have. And he says, was there any advantage? Well, yeah, yeah, there's an advantage. You were to be a light to the nations. You were to be a guide, an instructor, to show people how to follow God, how to be in relationship with God. But instead of being this bright, brilliant light, you've been very dim. You've made it hard for people to see God. In fact, the worst thing, down in verse 24, the nations are willing to blaspheme God. They don't want anything to do with God because they look at you and they see how you live and they see what you talk. And so Paul, once again, puts us all on the same flat platform. It's not an Olympic platform with first and second and third where the Jews feel a little bit taller. It's all of us on the same level ground. And the Jews are kind of raising their hands and saying, is there any advantage, any at all? And Paul says, well, yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of advantage. Let's read a little bit more. Verse 1 of chapter 3. So what is the advantage that a Jew has? Or what's the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. I can kind of see the Jew sitting up, straightening their tie, saying, well, that's good. Yeah, let's hear about this advantage. Much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Would their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Though everyone is a liar... Though everyone is a liar, let God be proved true as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what do we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the entire world? So Paul says, 
Is there any advantage? Sure, there's an advantage, and it goes something like this. You were given the divine words of God, and you were unfaithful. And so God was able to show faithfulness to you. Can I translate that to you? God told you what to do. You were stupid, and so your stupidness was a chance for God to move in and show his grace. Now the Jews are ticked at this point again. They're furious, and yet they can't deny that their own unfaithfulness is a chance for God to show his great faithfulness. There's somebody sitting in the corner of the church, listening. Maybe they're not on that side as a Jew or this other side as a Gentile, but there's a cynic, there's a skeptic. Someone that raises a question that might have gotten buried. If God is faithful and humans are unfaithful, how can God claimed to be just. If God knows that we all make mistakes, whether Jews with the law or Gentiles without, is that really any kind of justice from God to act in that way? Sin is present for all. And so maybe since everyone sins, we should just continue in sin and then God can be more and more gracious. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. When you choose a life that destroys yourself, when you choose a life that's separate from God, you get that life. God is gracious. And the graciousness that he shows to an unfaithful group of Jews is exactly the kind of grace that allows him to show faithfulness to an unfaithful Gentile or non-Jew. Which gets us to the third section. We're all judged the same. Did you notice these are the same? Jews don't really have an advantage of all. And here we are again in verse 9. We're all under the power of sin. We're no better. Let me read to you just a couple of verses. Look at 9 and, verse 10, 9 and 10. What then, are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin. As it's written... There's no one who's righteous, not even one. There's no one with understanding. There's no one who seeks after God. And he goes on and he preaches a, a sermon from a synagogue that just quotes lots of scripture. But look down in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight. The deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. Remember that point I told you at the front? That's really been every one of these points. We all are under the power of sin, whether we've got the law or whether we have the law on our hearts. We all make mistakes. And so the answer to the question of the skeptic or the cynic in the corner that's like, how could God judge us for these things? The truth is that God, in showing faithfulness to an unfaithful Jew who has broken the covenant, a God who could walk away, God doesn't. He stays faithful to them. That same grace is what allows God to look at the whole world and say, yes, I know you're unfaithful, but I'm going to show my graciousness to you. I really only told you half of the point. Do we all make mistakes? Yeah, that's a no-brainer. Didn't we already know that? 
it's good for us to be reminded that we're the same because we tend to forget that we all make mistakes. But the second part of that is, are we going to trust our deeds? Are we going to trust our status? Or will we trust the righteousness of God? Will we trust the action that God has done? Because it's very easy for us to trust our own deeds, our own status as being on the inside, to think of ourselves as the ones who should get a little bit of special privilege because we're on the inside. And once we realize that, that all make mistakes, and that we're trusting in the righteousness of God, you know what that allows us to do? Is that our heart and our deeds are united in following God. Paul unravels any notion that we have some special status. He unravels that we can work our way in. And he unveils, he strips naked the righteousness of God for us to see. God is showing his righteousness to all in Christ Jesus. Opening up the doorway through faith. Now, if you, I can't pass up on this chance. If you want to know about that righteousness, the righteousness that he goes on to explain in verse 22. Talk to me. I want to tell you about how you can access that righteousness. But today, since we can't have a lot of one-on-one conversations, I want to show you this thing that's been on the back wall, this background. I want to show you how one person has helped us think about how the righteousness of God gets manifest in our own lives. This is an, a, painting, a painting by Mark Chagall. A Jewish painting. It's called the Exodus. It was painted in the late 50s and early 60s, so after World War II. And there's several things that are really strange about this painting. As you spend time looking at it, you guys have been having to stare at it wondering, what's that? What is that background? And, And one of the first things you notice is that it's not Moses in the center leading the people across the Red Sea, you know, out of Egypt slavery. It's Jesus. Jesus shows up. That's a bit odd. Another strange thing is that this is not a Red Sea crossing painting where you're traveling with the Jews. They're all looking at you. Those of us that are looking at the painting, we're staring into the eyes of the people that are about to cross the Red Sea. It's as if we are the Red Sea. A guy in Austin wrote a little article about this painting and pointed out that there's a lot going on inside of Mark Chagall, current to his time, post-World War II. Being a Jew, there was a a boat that you can't quite see up in the upper left-hand quarter. In 1947, the boat was purchased from the United States. It was called the Exodus 1947 boat. And what they did was load up a bunch of Holocaust survivors. So these are Jews that had survived the execution of of the Jews, the Holocaust. And they wanted to take these Jews from France into safety, into northern Palestine. And they bought this boat, this Zionist group, and took them to northern Palestine. When the boat got to northern Palestine, British uh, boats surrounded and said, you cannot, you can't come in. Turned them away. So they went back to France, and France said, no, no, we were sending you away. You can't come here. And so they sat on the boat for three weeks, and a lot of the Jews went through a hunger strike, trying to get the attention of people. And finally, the boat was sent 
to none other than Hamburg, Germany. Irony of ironies. They're trying to escape Germany, and they get sent back into Germany. The thing that's strange to me about this painting, with Jesus and the people that are staring at us, is the fact that Mark Chacal is a Jew. He's not a Jewish Christian, he's a Jew. And evidently he sees something in Jesus, maybe as a fellow brother, one who suffered and died for being a Jew, for the things that he believed in. Maybe he sees some camaraderie there. And then I think maybe he's also sending a message to Christian countries, using Jesus' own words, who says, whenever you welcome a stranger, you welcome me. Whenever you receive someone that's unnamed, you're receiving me. And the reason I bring this this painting into our conversation today is that in this passage that we read today, it's very easy for us as Christians to point across the aisle to the Jews, to the religious people who think they've got it all together. But in this story, we are the religious ones. We are the ones that trust our own actions. And I want us to know that God takes us as we are. And he puts our lives together. He helps us have that life together with him and with one another. And we have choices that we make every day. Whether or not we'll listen or not. And yet God is present. When I stood there by the parking garage wondering what in the world I was going to do, I was frozen. I was like completely overwhelmed. I'd missed that information. I had no way to connect. And I thought about all the blocks of separation and I, I waited for a while. I walked down the street where I could see along the river thinking, well, maybe, maybe they didn't want to meet at the parking garage. Maybe they wanted to meet down by the river. And I waited and I waited. And we didn't have much time. We had to get those tubes turned back in. And so I walked down the river looking for points of entry and thought, well, maybe there's just one point of entry, one place that I can get in. No, there were lots. Lots of places that you could get in. So many places. And so I just sat down on a fence completely powerless, caught up in my own mistake, unable to break free. And then my phone rings. Look at it, it's a strange Colorado number. Pick up the phone. Dad, where are you? Why didn't you meet us at the place that we were supposed to meet? I was like, I, I didn't get it. I totally missed that instruction. I only heard the instructions for getting to the parking garage. Where are you? How are you doing running your life? Are you paying attention? Are you getting everyone fixed? Is your schedule perfectly aligned? Are you balancing work and family and play just perfectly? Or do you recognize that, yes, we make mistakes? We make mistakes that, thankfully, my own son was very patient with me on and allowed for a fun time that's even funnier of us going down that river nearly dying. Not telling you that story today. But this isn't just about just making mistakes. It's about what we're going to trust. Are we going to trust our deeds of how well or how poorly we've performed in life? Are we going to trust our deeds or are we going to trust God and God's righteousness? Are we going to lean upon God? 
Because when we begin to trust God, our heart and our action begins to come together. And we can trust God in faith that he will take us where we need to go. Let's pray. Eternal God, maker of heaven and earth, thank you for making us. Help us to know that we are made by you, that we are loved by you, and that you want to live in us. We thank you for the powerful ways that you've shown us your righteousness through Jesus. Through Jesus' sacrifice of laying down his life, of giving himself up for us. And may that inspire us to similar deeds, to similar actions, to a certain way of living in this world, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, so that we can trust you and where, what you are doing and where you are taking us. We give you our lives so that you can put them together in Christ. And we pray this through the eternal Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.